This is my voice. <laughs> you keep it with you at all times, don't you? I I do, unless I go to a rock concert or something, and I leave it there. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Don't panic, they'll be paid for most of us. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 62 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hi guys. Joe Eames. Hey there. AJ O'Neill. Not coming at you live, not at all. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and we have a special guest this week, and that's Dylan Sheeman. So, uh, do you want to introduce yourself real quick, Dylan? Sure. Thanks, Charles. I'm Dylan. I'm one of the founders of an open source project called the Dojo Toolkit, and I'm also the CEO at SitePen, a company that builds web apps and provides JavaScript training and support. Awesome. So, Dojo's been around for a long time, hasn't it? Nine years. Nine yes. years. Oh, yeah. A, a three lifetimes in the internet age, I guess. Does that make it older than jQuery? or? It does, yes. It, uh, jQuery, I think, started about seven years ago, maybe? Six or seven years ago? Yeah, I remember seeing a couple of websites built in Dojo way back in the day. I don't remember exactly which ones they were, but for some reason I got the uh, the impression that it was a framework, but it's it's more of a toolkit. It's much more like jQuery than it is like, say, Backbone or Ember or any of those. Well, it's kind of everything, right? So you can use it as a simple toolkit like jQuery. You have DOM manipulation APIs and, you know, Ajax event handlers and promises and deferreds and, you know, other functional programming constructs. And then there's a widget library on top of it that is very nice and it's internationalizable and accessible and each widget in many ways can be bound to um, a data object store giving it sort of a little MVC style um, interface and then but there are you know application frameworks that build on top of that and uh, you know native vector graphics APIs and so it, it's really kind of this massive collection of 1500 or 1600 modules that come together and you know start as a very small toolkit that can be, you know, three or four kilobytes gzipped, you know, all the way up to, you know, the entire kitchen sink if you wanted it. So just to give us an idea, are there websites out there that are built on Dojo that you're sort of proud of? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's always <laughs> frustrating to be, uh, you know, because, of course, you see your work used in, in ways maybe you wouldn't want to use it. But, you know, there are some popular consumer sites that use Dojo, such as, like, uh, tdameritrade.com um, uses it for their stock brokerage platform, or the Wall Street Journal uses it, you know, as their toolkit of choice for viewing financial news. Uh, a lot of banks have started to embrace Dojo, like J.P. Morgan Chase or uh, TD Bank up in Canada, things like that. Um, of course, uh, SitePen and Dojo use their their own toolkit. Um, there's a project called Voro.com that uses Dojo in a pretty interesting way that is financial charting in the cloud. And, um, you know, there are thousands of other sites, but a large majority of Dojo use lives inside applications that are more complex than a typical .com. You know, they're more along the lines of, I need to build a financial trading system and I want to do that in a browser, but, you know, it's behind a firewall or behind a, you know, a login. Or, you know, um, one of the more popular um, companies for building mapping technology is a company called ESRI. And they provide, um, you know, something competitive with Google Maps, but much more focused on people who typically work in governments or, um, you know, agencies that need to provide demographic information. And so they built their um, JavaScript API on top of Dojo. So almost any government agency that has a map-based project uses Dojo because they, they choose to use that API. Um, so there's a, a lot of reach into a lot of different places that, that isn't obvious at times. So I feel like there's an elephant in the room right now. And I want to make that elephant visible to everyone. And that's oh. the dojo seems like it has this kind of connotation of, of old and uncool. Why, why should I care about it now? Well, um, if you tried it nine years ago, it's 
basically not at all like it is um, today. And, you know, what we're seeing is that the JavaScript community has kind of grown up a lot, right? So six or seven years ago, people were like, look, um, yellow fade effect, or look, I can do an Ajax request. But now what we're seeing is pretty much everyone out there is like, okay, we need modules, we need um, good application architecture, you know, we need all of these different things. And many of these things have sort of permeated from Dojo into other projects. In fact, I think Peter Higgins, either yesterday or today, gave a talk at JSConf called Dojo Already Did That, which is kind of a, a joke about JSConf every year. Like people are like, oh, Dojo already did that. And, <laughs> you know, we're, we are a community that seems to love to reinvent the wheel. Even if there's something out there that's great, we want to sort of recreate it ourselves from scratch. And that's, that's cool. But what it means is that, a lot of the things that we've done with Dojo, you can easily use in other projects. So it's not really about, hey, use Dojo or jQuery or Backbone or whatever, right? It's more about these are tools you can mix and max, you know, mix and match modules as needed, or you can, you know, decide, hey, I like this approach and I want to use it. So for example, the most popular module loading system today on the web is Require.js. Well, Require.js is a Dojo Foundation project that was started by the person who worked on the Dojo module loader. So, you know, we've really tried to take the approach of, if you don't want to use Dojo, that's fine. We'd like to give you the tools that, you know, you could use inside other ecosystems rather than sort of trying to lock you into a particular environment. So the best thing I've seen Dojo do for the community is sort of create these things that other people are using without really knowing they're using anything at all related to Dojo, um, which is fine, you know. So if they have that connotation, they can... Um, ignore that, but chances are they're probably using something that that comes from Dojo, and and that's what it's all about, really, is making it easier to build applications and and providing good good projects. Sure, yeah. that makes sense. I, I it was interesting. I was looking through the um, the tutorials to get started, and uh, the the first couple that I went through, I was like, well, I do most of this with jQuery, but there's still so much more there, and there were a couple of things that really stuck out to me as things that get me a little bit excited about Dojo. The first one is is that it, like you said, it, it hooks into AMD and uses Require.js for everything, which may... Wh I, at first, I didn't get it, but once I started using it, it was like, oh, this makes things really, really nice. Is there a reason why you decided to go with uh, AMD and Require.js? Well, prior to that, we had a synchronous loading uh, module system, which was... The syntax of it was a little less cryptic, but... The problem, of course, is that you were loading modules um, synchronously, which gave the impression of every application being slow. And the way we solved that early on was saying, well, just do a build, you know, and a build is basically take all these HTTP, you know, HTTP resources and combine them into one or two files so that they can be optimized quickly. But of course, no one does that when they're first trying out a project. So the impression was, hey, this dojo thing is slow. Also, we had this concept of um, namespaces so that, you know, you could easily mix and match um, work across projects. But namespaces involve the creation of fairly large object structures in memory. Um, and especially in older versions of IE, this, this made applications quickly sort of cycle into that constant garbage collection mode that we all love when dealing with IE 6 or 7. And so AMD sort of evolved from that as a, a new approach that would give us two benefits. One is being able to do all of our JavaScript loading asynchronously by doing script um, tag injection rather than by doing XHRs to pull in resources. And then the second benefit was that we could do all of our modules somewhat anonymously so that basically every reference to a module is just a local variable lookup. So you don't have these long you know, namespace chains, but also you don't have these large object structures in memory representing, you know, what you're just trying to do to to keep things separated and, and modular. Um, so for us, it was sort of a syntax that we could retrofit into the language that covered all of our use cases for how we need to load modules. And it gave us, you know, these nice performance benefits without any other change. Um, so for us, it was sort of a no-brainer. And, you know, it evolved somewhat also out of the, the CommonJS module specification that's popular for Node. And, you know, the CommonJS uh, syntax is a bit simpler, but when you're running an application inside of Node, you don't worry about loading resources asynchronously because they're all already there in memory or, you know, on the same server. But when you're running over, you know, the web, you want to be able to load things asynchronously, and that syntax, unfortunately, doesn't facilitate that. And hence, um, you know, the AMD syntax and the, the approach makes that easy for us to, 
to you know get the best of both worlds, which is you know something that can work over the web and that's you know fairly terse and concise and and modular. I think you've outlined the benefits of AMD and Require.js very, very well there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Th- those are the problems that it solved for me. Absolutely. And, you know, if if you don't have a large project and you don't have a lot of modules, I still think it's a good idea because at the end of the day, your your application is going to get bigger. It's going to be used by other people. And, you know, it, it just introduces a level of discipline that you don't get if you try and sort of shove all of your application logic into a single file. So I have another question or another thing that I wanted to go into, and that is I was um, I was just kind of muddling around your website, and I noticed that you have a widget widgets framework. Yes. Can you talk about that really quickly? Because I really haven't seen anything like that. I've I've done similar things with views in Backbone and stuff, but it's not the same. And it kind of be nice to have something that really is kind of focused on widgets. Right. So what Digit is, is it's a collection of user interface widgets, as well as a framework for building user interface widgets. And so basically you can think of the widgets that are provided in Digit as sort of reference implementation widgets. So they are generally classified into a few different categories. One is form controls, basically providing replacements for most of the native controls where you can't style them in old IE the way you would want to. Um, as well as controls that don't exist, even in HTML5. Sometimes you want a combo box, and you know that hasn't been around for a long time until now. Um, the second class is, is layout widgets, and the idea is basically if you want to create a single-page application and you want to put things side-by-side side and you want to introduce splitters and, and you know other user interface controls to basically be able to say, oh, I want this to be next to this, and I want this to lay out here. Um, I want this to be closable, um, things like that. And then the third is sort of other widgets like grids and uh, rich text editor controls and trees and things like that that sort of don't fall into to other th- you know, those two other categories. But then more importantly, underneath that is a system that supports several things. One is any widget can be instantiated um, either through an HTML markup with custom attributes using um, the HTML5 data attributes, or it can be instantiated through JavaScript. Um, two, they're all internationalizable and accessible. Um, so basically, it's really easy using resource bundles to provide translations for each of your widgets, as well as using ARIA roles and, and all of the good um, web content accessibility guidelines work to basically say, okay, this widget is um, works in a colorblindness environment. It works through keyboard navigation. It works with screen readers, things like that. The next thing is that basically each widget is an HTML file a CSS file and a JavaScript file. And so the HTML is basically the underlying template that's going to be rendered. And it has some nice convenient custom attributes that can provide hooks to your JavaScript. So for example, when you want to put five widgets in a page, you don't want to use any HTML IDs in them because of course you can only have one in a page. So it defines sort of these custom attach points that basically say, okay, in my markup, I've defined this attach point foo node. Then inside the scope of the instance of that widget, I can say this dot foo node, and it gives me a reference to that node reference within that widget instance. So that's really quite handy and, and quite easy for you know creating reusable multi-use widgets within a page. Beyond that, you know, it supports a lot of other features. For example, you can mix in the capability for a widget to contain other widgets or for managing relationships between widgets. Most of the widgets uh, use a pub-sub mechanism to be able to communicate changes. And then widgets that display data um, bind to our object store API, which basically allows us to provide different data services but the widget itself is just aware of the ability to get and set data. So for example, you can say, I've got a grid widget, it's bound to this data source that's in memory, and I want to get data updates, and then basically hook it up, and then you get a grid that live updates as your, your data source changes. So it's it's a pretty nice uh, system for user interface controls, whereas um, you know a lot of the backbone views are sort of probably a level up from that, managing like the entire... Um, layout of your page, but not necessarily low-level user interface controls. Awesome. That's that's awesome. I'm definitely going to have to look into this a little bit more. You know, in many ways, it's interesting. Digit is kind of the basis for where the original web component specification came from. So if you look, for example, at a project like Polymer, which is in very pre-alpha, 
it is in essence building Digit over again on top of the web component spec and the Shadow DOM API and a lot of these, you know, new APIs that are sort of based on the things that we've done with Digit that really should be easier to do in a browser. So you can imagine Digit 2 or Digit 3 eventually moving in the same direction, building on top of, you know, whatever's available in a browser. But we're, we're pretty pragmatic in Dojo. So we really take what's there today or what's there very soon. And whereas a project like Polymer is sort of, here's where the, the world is going to be in five years. Let's start building for it now because Chrome supports it. Does somebody use a different browser? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, remember, Dojo has a lot of enterprise users, and a lot of them don't have choice, and so they're stuck with IE 8 or 9, or, um, you know, a lot of people still do like Firefox because, you know, there's the... They're purists. I mean, I actually prefer Firefox for one reason, and that's the awesome bar. Um, the awesome bar remembers more about what I've done conveniently than Chrome's um, address bar does. And so I find myself using Firefox for most of my non-development um, work, which is like, you know, reading articles. I know, like, if I can remember a fraction of the title from, like, six months ago and I haven't cleared my history, Firefox will remember it for me. Whereas Chrome, I kind of have to remember sort of the order in which the title was described. It doesn't really do a good job of remembering sub-words that I've, you know, browsed I, in my history. I have noticed with Chrome that it is a little bit inconsistent about how it remembers your history. Yeah, and that alone is enough for me to still use Firefox. And, you know, Firefox has improved a lot in terms of performance, and so um, that said, choice is good, you know. Like, we're, we're all about choice. We want to support any browser that isn't terrible. So, for example, <laughs> Dojo 2 will support IE9 and newer and, you know, other modern browsers, but it won't support 6, 7, and 8, whereas Dojo 1 still supports 6, 7, and 8, and it's still going to be maintained for a while until no one cares about those browsers anymore. How, so you, how, how do you make a decision ahead. like that? Well, for, and it's actually um, one we made recently, and you know, it's not an easy decision because we do have a lot of enterprise customers who are using um, IE 8 and 7, and you know, that one of the reasons they choose Dojo is because we do support those browsers pretty well. But they do contribute to this factor of, wow, there's a lot of code in there that is kind of old and kludgy to support those browsers that we'd love to get rid of. Um, and you know, really we're looking at, okay, Microsoft is going to finally, hopefully for real, end of life, IE8 and XP next year. So if Dojo 2 comes out next year at roughly the same time, we can safely assume that, all right, we can support browsers that are actively supported by their vendors today. And we still have the 1.x, you know, line of code that we're going to continue to support as long as people care, um, so that we can still give them updates and, and crucial fixes. But that way we can focus most of our new efforts on something that's a lot cleaner. So I'm just curious, because I heard that uh, with jQuery, when they did made this decision, it allowed them to remove a ton of code from their code base. Is How much code do you think that's going to remove from the Dojo code base? In some modules, 10 or 20%, and other modules, 100%. You know, we have some code that is strictly for 6, 7, and 8 support. Overall, I don't, I don't know, a, you know a total percentage, but it... It really, like, for example, our native vector graphics implementation, GFX, you know, it supports Canvas and SVG, of course, but it also supports Silverlight and VML. So the Silverlight and VML code can be dropped immediately. There's probably half the code base for, you know, vector graphics. And we'll add in WebGL support, presumably, and, um, you know, be able to support more features. So, like, there's one module where it's a huge benefit. Querying, to be honest, if you drop 6, 7, and 8, there's not really much left to do for querying. I mean, IE9 doesn't quite have all the features you might want. And, of course, there are custom, you know, selectors that aren't really part of any CSS3 spec that maybe you want to support. But you can probably shave 80 to 90% off the size of your query engine if you don't have to support 6, 7, or 8. Um, other features, like, you know, Aspect-oriented programming, you really don't save anything at all, um, except maybe, you know, the, the ability to do native getters and setters, um, you know, in modern browsers gets rid of some of the, you know, cruftiness you might need in your API. Though there's still some, some work to be done in ECMAScript 6 before we really can um, drop some cruft there as well. Even the ability to basically watch for a change to a variable is something that's kind of elusive and always supposedly like one, you know, release away. And we're never quite there to have a clean solution. So we basically have to re-implement, you know, the ability to bind or watch changes to properties or variables throughout, 
you know, an entire code base, which means sort of your, your entire API is built around that notion. And that adds a lot of cruft, and we would love to get rid of that, you know, at some point in the future as well. So you mentioned um, Dojo 2. You mentioned part of it is dropping support for old browsers, but, but what's, what's cool there that's coming besides that? Well, that's still early. You know, we're still a year out, and we're, we're kind of deciding what is cool and what is not. Um, you know, to me, one of the things that's kind of bugged me for a couple of years is we have, we have Digit and we have Dojo Mobile. And Dojo Mobile is a collection of, you know, user interface optimizations for mobile UIs, right? And it's not quite the same as Digit. And now you can use Digit on mobile or you can use Dojo Mobile on mobile if you want to, you know, sort of match the look and feel of, of the device. And so one of the things we'll do for Dojo 2 is basically say, all right, we've got one user interface library and, you know, maybe the term's kind of silly, but we want responsive digits, right? So basically, if you've got a widget and you change to a smaller form factor, you want to be able to change the capabilities of it quite easily. And that's not really something you can do with responsive design with widgets because responsive design is basically about media queries and pulling in CSS. But, you know, if you rely only on that, you're going to pull in all the JavaScript logic that you need for both the desktop and, you know, mobile browsers. And that's not necessarily ideal because, of course, in the environment of a phone, you want to optimize for, you know, your resources being as tiny as possible. So then you see people sort of, you know, optimizing in ways that are that are not fun and, and not pleasant. So we really want to sort of streamline that process. You know, really just making it easier to build applications. We've seen a lot of maturity, you know, from, you mentioned Ember and Backbone. And, and you know, Dojo's had a lot of app framework stuff, but I think we'll see something come along that'll be um, quite powerful and quite easy to use that um, really hasn't been done before. You know, just there's so many different ways to go from like local storage to, you know, really nice grid widgets to um, cleaner APIs. And it's not really as sexy as saying like, look, here's this brand new thing that's reinvented the wheel from scratch. But you just see lots of different things that um, can be cleaned up and, and made possible that weren't really doable when we started Dojo, you know, in 2004 or when 1.0 came out in 2007, right? So if you think about it, 1.0 is a you know, a version of Dojo, and we're on 1.9 right now, which was just released earlier this month. And you can pretty much write code in 1.0 that will work in 1.9. And that's, so basically we've, you know, through the course of Safari and Chrome being introduced to the world and being turned into real browsers and, you know, the iPhone coming out and all of the mobile browsers that have followed since then, we've managed to create a toolkit that you can pretty much take old code and make it work with the new version. That said, of course, if you want to take advantage of newer features like AMD, you, you do have to rewrite a lot of your work. But still, it's pretty impressive to think that something that was created, you know, six years ago can still work today. And in fact, like Apple was using Dojo 0.4 on their store until I think it was last year. You know, so they were using wow. code that was seven or eight years old to, you know, basically update your shopping cart with the pricing information based on the features you had selected. For a very long time, um, so you know we're really into longevity of code, um, which is which is cool. Um, but so 2.x is sort of the time where we say, okay, a lot's changed in six years. It's time to provide a better starting point that's easier to work with that takes advantage of browsers today and tomorrow, without alienating our users, of course. So you know, giving migration scripts and a path forward and. And, you know, not changing the API so much that people feel like it's a completely new toolkit. They might as well reevaluate the world. But, you know, something that keeps what they like but improves upon it rather than just burning it down and starting over. It seems like it's not the dominant tool, even though it's been around for so long. And, and I guess the question I have is, how do you market an open source project? Or, or, you know, how do you help people figure out that Dojo is the tool that they need? So it's interesting. It's not a problem I worry about. And... Maybe that's a bit naive, but, you know, I worry about building good tools that people can use in a nice open source ecosystem. You know, so to me, if one tool wins, we've kind of failed in our mission, right? The goal isn't to, like, make Dojo win at the expense of jQuery. The goal is to provide stuff that people want to use. And if they don't want to use it, they'll use something else. And no amount of marketing is really going to change that. Now, that said, like, probably the best thing we did to market Dojo ever was create a collection of tutorials on the Dojo site that make Dojo more approachable to a wider audience of people. I'm going to interject um, here because they are really good. I've been reading through them, and, and they're excellent. They're superb. 
Thank you. Yeah, I mean, basically, SitePen spent about a year of development time, you know, for a person, but, you know, spread across the team to create most of those because we felt like people complained relentlessly about the documentation. Now they complain that there's too much documentation. So I'm okay. I'm okay <laughs> with that complaint. You know, what it means is we've got too many different versions of too many different things because we version our documentation by release and it's easy to like end up on the wrong version and, and all those good problems. But, but, you know, Good documentation and good APIs are the best way you can market an open source project, you know, followed quickly by nice demos that impress people and, and do that. Um, but, you know, Dojo is used extensively throughout large enterprises. So, you know, the number of banks, insurance companies, large corporations, pharmaceutical companies, you know, like companies that you're not going to find out because they're not blogging about it, but then you find out they've got like 3,000 developers that use Dojo for, you know, a hundred web apps internally. Like that's not sexy, but it's, but it's awesome. And so what we find is we've got like 1% of the public internet and like 25 to 50% of the private internet, you know, use Dojo. Um, so it's not the sexy thing that's going to, you know, make people say, wow, you know, like amazon.com used this, you know, they're, they're set in their, their projects, but, um, you know, we have a lot of users and obviously enough to, to, you know, support the project and support companies built on top of it and use it. So, um, you know, my focus is like, if Dojo is not a project that I would use as my first choice, then I've, you know, I've lost my way and that's where I start. And so like 2.0 is sort of about making sure that that continues. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how much we market old stuff. No one will use it in, in two or three years. So I did want to throw out there, um, for people in the Midwest, KSL used to use Dojo. Awesome. Cool. I the other thing I was going to say was, well, I was going to say if, if you look at YUI, you know, I, I noticed you posted a link there, right? YUI 3 made a huge mistake. And that was they basically remarketed themselves as all the cool features in jQuery and Dojo, but as YUI. But then when they released, you know, one of the reasons people really liked YUI 2 was it, it also had a number of nice user interface widgets done, done differently than Dojo, but you could say it was somewhat comparable to Dojo's widget set. And they released with like four UI widgets. And so everyone said, but where are the widgets? That's what I like. That's what I use. You know, so when you were like, when we release Dojo 2, we can't just release the core and say, yeah, we'll have another set of widgets in a year. You know, like no one's going to care until the UI components and, you know, convenient features are there. Um, and so we won't be making that mistake, hopefully. Sounds yeah. kind of like how no one will care about the Wii U until Mario Kart is there. Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny, the, you know, Wii U really has uh, not done super well. And, and yeah, I think that's really it, you know. All the stuff that people want to do with it, they can't yet. Yeah, right. So uh, the, the reason I posted the link to the the YUI, because I just wanted to bring up like this idea of graded support. And it looks like they changed their page because they, with YUI 2 or 3 or whichever one it was they released, they had this graded support where basically they'd say, like, ABC. With certain, yeah. yeah, with certain browsers, it would gracefully degrade. So you wouldn't be getting the, the shadows or, you know, so, something like that. And I was just kind of wondering if uh, you guys have a particular feeling about graded support versus dropping it entirely and like when is the right time because you touched on it a little bit but i just wanted to hear a little bit more well so dojo today like supports ie6 but there are features you simply can't get in that browser so we you know we degrade reasonably well there but you know for something like dojo 2 we're really saying yeah um this isn't going to work in ie6 7 or 8 and it it's kind of a fundamental, you know, like there are features that you simply don't get in that browser that we need um, to build a toolkit for tomorrow. Otherwise, you will basically run into a bunch of new toolkits that don't worry about those browsers that can do all these amazing things that you simply can't do. And and that's kind of the point at which you say, look, we can't we can't continue to support this anymore, is when it's just inhibiting your ability to get anything done. So, for example, supporting all of the ugly CSS issues with 6, 7, and 8, right, are just not fun. And, you know, like, if you look at this underlying structure of some of the widgets, you're like, what is this mess, right? And it's because it's the only way to get that particular widget to work in, in 6 or 7, right? And we don't want to do that anymore. And pretty much 9 and newer, at least we, you know, have a better baseline starting point. And, you know, if you look at jQuery, like they've basically said, 
you know, the biggest disappointment is we still have to support old Android. So we, they still have a whole bunch of, you know, hacks for old Android uh, browsers in their, their code base. Yeah, if uh, I remember correctly, uh, jQuery 2.0 dropped support for the old Internet Explorer. And for some functionality, they have a, like, it's, it's like jQuery.backwardscompat or something like that. Yeah, it sort of warns you of the features that you need to add. I mean, they're doing kind of an interesting thing, which is like you can use jQuery 1.10 or jQuery 2.1, and they they match feature-wise. But I don't think we'll go that route because I don't think it's necessarily worth the effort. I think people that are kind of on the 1.x code line aren't going to want to make the jump until they're ready. And so what we'll do instead is just continue to maintain them differently and and basically you know if you have to support older browsers you use the older apis if you're ready to drop six seven and eight you use the newer you know the newer work and it really fundamentally comes down to a few things you know in javascript and css that you simply can't shim easily without introducing a lot of cruft throughout your api and we're ready to move on so i noticed that i i feel like jquery dropping support for internet explorer old crappy browser and and using strict mode is is really kind of paving and brightening the way for other toolkits and and frameworks do you feel like your decision to finally move forward with dojo was it all influenced by that broad opening it made it easy to convince people that doubted it was the right time because you have people who say oh we can't drop ie8 everyone uses it and then the same people will say everyone uses jquery and so we can say, um, you're, you know, you're, you're not really making a lot of sense here. So it's certainly a, a data point that helps us, you know, believe that it is, it is the right time. Um, but, you know, we did notice there is some backlash against their approach. People don't read long enough to see, oh, I can continue to use 1.10 and it will still work. Um, so, you know, it's basically you have to inform users and make it easy for them to understand the differences um, and why they would do that. But I do think waiting another year for us is a good thing because it, it sort of coincides with that end of you know end of life and for the, enterprises. And the enterprise customers, yeah. And yeah. because we have so many enterprise users, um, you know, it, it makes sense for our our group. Well, and I so, really, I really like the model of maintaining the old version and moving ahead with the new version at least for a certain period of time because then people can start preparing to make the transition. Yeah, I mean, we have users who are just now upgrading from 1.0. So they've been using that since 2007. And they're just now saying, oh, you know, this this 1.7 or 1.8 looks nice. And, (laughs) you know, it's like, where have you been the past six years? Because it's, it's, you know, honestly quite easier to sort of upgrade each release a little bit at a time rather than to say, I haven't touched this code base in six years. I'm ready to change it. Um, But, you know, enterprises work differently than, than most of us who prefer the, you know, public-facing web. So um, that's our world. (laughs) So are you guys going to follow suit and start using strict mode as well, or are you guys still holding off on that? The reason we haven't used strict mode to date is because we have this module called Dojo Declare. And what it does is it allows you to sort of basically define superclasses, define mix-ins that are going to be combined into a class and then call up the inheritance chain using a this dot inherited call, and that breaks um, strict mode. So we have some ways around that that we figure we'll we'll implement for 2.0. But to be honest, like strict mode isn't the most exciting thing to us. Like when we do run tests and compare the performance gains by stripping out features, you know that that you wouldn't use with strict mode. It doesn't save us a lot more than just using the normal closure compiler. You know, like maybe it shaves a couple more percent off the size of our code base. So it's not as big of a gain as we expected. So it hasn't been as high of a priority for us, though I, I know why people like it, of course. Um, but you know, the, basically like the normal closure compiler gives us like 90% of the gains we normally get and strict mode just adds a little bit more on top. So it hasn't been as, as high of a priority. Okay. And then. Um, a lot of the other frameworks are starting to support Node so that it can use like the, the DOM library that's in Node. Are you, are you guys doing any testing with that or are you just focusing on browsers? Uh, Dojo has worked inside of Node for a couple of releases now. In 1.8, it was a little strange because basically you would pull in Dojo and then to pull in Node, you would actually reference it through an AMD plugin back to Node. 
Um, whereas 1.9 introduces sort of a more natural approach for working with Node um, inside a Dojo. But you know, the, the biggest complaint people have is sort of like, well, I'm used to common JS. Why do I want to use this AMD thing? And, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate around, should we move to UMD, which to me is, is, okay, yet another hack on top of modules, which is like another line of this really terse boilerplate that, that you insert inside of every file. And, you know, do you want to, impose that on every single module that's created or do you want to use a build step to add that for people and, um, and personally for that i just wish that node would add the define syntax native right I, I don't see where one is actually a clear win over the other i mean i think common js require js really can do the same work exactly and actually there was like a one month stretch where it was inside of node and then it was removed um, this was back in like 0 0.4 or 0 0.2 or, you know, sometime pretty early in the project. So like, for example, Dojo provides a module that just adds that right into Node and then you can use, you know, the require and define syntax that you're used to with AMD, um, which is, which we like a lot, of course. But, um, so yeah, I mean, you can run Node, um, Dojo inside of Node as, as you would and, and things work pretty nicely. Like, for example, we refactored our, XHR module, and it's now called Dojo Request in 1.8. And basically, when you require Dojo Request, if you require it in a browser, you get XHR by default. If you require it inside of Node, you get just a normal HTTP request object. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of clever things inside of Dojo that work well that way um, that, that weren't there before. So, can I ask a little bit more about the Dojo Foundation? That seemed really interesting to me, and I, I've heard of it, sure. but I wasn't super informed about it. So how do yeah. projects get in there? Is it only things that spin out internally from Dojo, or do you adopt external things, kind of like Apache does sometime? Or so when we started the Dojo Foundation, we looked at Apache and we saw a lot of process, and we said we don't really want to like become an incubated project. And so we talked to like the Python Software Foundation and the Eclipse Software Foundation, and they said, you know, it's not that hard to set up a foundation, and and really it wasn't. But we wanted one that was incredibly focused on code, like T-shirts and servers and keeping people out of legal trouble, trouble and nothing else. So it's a very minimalistic foundation. So like we, we have a board, but we never meet. You know, we, we occasionally send emails. The process for approving projects is basically someone writes up a proposal, sends it to me. I give them feedback on it. It gets sent out to the list of all committers across all projects. Everyone votes plus one or minus one. And after two days, it's either in or they're told to go back and refine their proposal if it, if it got so many no votes. And then from there, a project pretty much just has to basically say, I'm going to run this project in what Dion Almayer coined as a 100-point open source project, which means that basically you run the project in the open, the decisions are made in the open, one single vendor doesn't control the project, you abide by a license such as the BSD license or Apache license or MIT license, and that you, know, that you do your work in the open, and that's pretty much it. And so, you know, we have a collection of projects like RequireJS and the Dojo Toolkit and uh, the Jetty Comet D implementation for uh, server-side, you know, real-time web sockets and stuff. And then we have projects like Lodash, which was done by John, you know, David Dalton. That's basically a rewrite of Underscore. Or we have um, animation can I, projects. Can I just say projects. real quick? Go ahead. I love his terrible attitude. He is hilarious. Like, I just love how anytime <laughs> there's an issue on underscore, he fixes it in Lodash first and then like post back in the issue request and just crazy stuff like that. He's a total <laughs> jerk, but he's so freaking awesome about it. Yeah, he's, he kind of walks this fine line between complete asshole and completely funny. And it kind of depends where you're sitting on that particular day, whether you find it funny or, or, you know, assholeish. But, you know, he's very, focused and passionate about what he believes and and pushes it forward and he he alone has pushed underscore in a way that you know most projects don't get that benefit from their critics you know most critics will just go and do something else but he's basically said yeah i'm gonna do it better but i'm also going to help make you better and, you know that's pretty cool and pretty rare and we released um a few weeks ago a new project called the intern which is a new testing tool that we can talk about in a bit but he basically posted some very arcane, you know, pull requests that frankly, no one is ever going to run into these problems. But he's right, you know, they are bugs. But there's, it's sort of like if you're dealing with 50,000 things, it's probably not the three things you would care to touch first. But, you know, 
he cares enough about certain things that he'll do that. And that's pretty cool. And, and yet can be frustrating at the same time. Cause you're like, I want to focus on adding this shiny new thing, not making sure that, you know, um, I six testing works properly with the intern, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, good stuff. So, uh, Dojo Foundation is, is basically projects that have been voted in in that manner. And, um, beyond that, once you're a project, you're kind of on your own, you know, like we'll offer support and help and, you know, if community issues come up, but you're kind of just left to your own devices. So there's really not a lot of governance other than, you know, t- you know, giving people feedback when they ask questions and stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Sounds cool. So yeah. going back to the toolkit for a minute, is it pretty easy to test? If I put it into my stuff? Yeah, I mean, so Dojo itself includes a testing framework called DOE, which is an ac- a completely contrived acronym for the sound Homer Simpson makes when things fail. Um, DOE! <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And in fact, there is actually an optional module where you can like turn on and off sounds, DOE Do and WooHoo, um, which, is, which is cute. But at the same time, this tool was... <laughs> was not actively maintained uh, in a meaningful way for several years. And, and many new t- testing tools have come out. So one of the first things we said for Dojo 2 was, hey, okay, great, we've got these fifteen or 20,000 tests or maybe more inside of all of Dojo, but we need a better tool that supports things like continuous integration and different styles for writing assertions and code coverage analysis and you know being able to test against the cloud and hooking into Travis CI. So we wrote a new project called um, The Intern which uses Dojo um, for some basic features, but works with any JavaScript um, tool. What's cool is basically each test suite is just an AMD module. And so you write these AMD modules that define your tests, your startup methods. You can write unit tests, or you can write functional tests using the web driver wire protocol and all those good things. And then you can run your tests in the browser. You can run them in command line against um, you know, Node, or you can run them against uh, Sauce Labs or any Selenium grid in the cloud. And then, you know, it just has a bunch of nice pluggable things. So like, if you don't like our assertion syntax, we, we chose to use the one from um, our project called Chai. You can write a little adapter to, you know, plug in the syntax that you like. Or if you don't like the code coverage analysis tool and you find something else you like, just plug that out and plug something new in. Or if you don't want to test against Sauce Labs, but you want to test against some other service that's come out, um, you just, you know, unplug that part of the module and plug something in its place. So, it's it's really cool and really handy, and it's definitely what we're you know replacing Doe with. Um, it's like we have a tool today, and we have a tool for tomorrow that that's usable with Dojo One Eight as well as um, you know anything going forward. As well as you know, people have written tests um, examples using Backbone and using jQuery and using other projects, and we've been getting random pull requests and and patches from really cool people like the founder of Lifehacker. She submitted a patch one weekend that was like for a typo in the documentation. But it's just cool to see people that, you know, you have no idea that they care and suddenly they're submitting pull requests on the weekend and it's pretty neat. Nice. So the other question I have for you is regarding the, you you talked about vector graphics a little bit ago and uh, usually there are two things that I see vector graphics used for. One is for um, cool looking animation some kind of game or just something cool to look at. And the other thing I've seen it used for is charting a graphic. So right. um, what support do you have for awesome art and what support do you have for charting a graphing? Charting and graphing is the easier one. We've had Dojo X charting since like 2005 or six, and it's a rich charting API. It supports financial graphs. It supports, um, you know, Area It supports your standard, like 20 or 30 plot types. It supports themes. It supports multiple axes, multiple plots layered on top of each other. But the coolest feature is that it's backed by the same object store API. So you can basically say, hey, I've got this object store that, that provides all my data. I'm binding it to my chart, to my form, and to my grid. And I make a change in the form, and it updates the value in the chart, val- you know, updates the values in my grid. Um, and so you have sort of like this convenient way to synchronize um different views of the same data concisely. Um, and then there's a, the project that SitePen's been working on called Voro, which is voro.com. And it is basically a hosted cloud version of financial charting built on top of Dojo's charting API um, for basically customers that don't want to bother to figure out how to do charts, but they're looking to move from you know Flex or Silverlight charts to web-based charts. And it's kind of the last thing holding financial institutions back completely from moving away from uh, proprietary technology is a solid, robust charting implementation. And so we've been working on that as well. 
And then lower level, we have a vector graphics API. And it's called GFX for graphics. And it supports 2D and 3D effects, animations, visualizations. And it it follows roughly the, the SVG semantics for shapes and lines and curves and and drawing. And, you know, it's you can draw, like, bubbles, or you can draw, you know, their classic tiger example and other animations. And this is probably an area where we're not as good at marketing as D3 or processing or, um, you know, um, the other one that I'm forgetting that's also popular. Raphael. And then, you know, yes, Raphael there. Thank you. And, you know, so there's a lot of projects out there. We've been doing this quite a bit longer, and we do have uh, a wider feature set in terms of, like, supporting more rendering engines than any of the other projects out there. But, you know, it's it's competitive with those, and it's been around forever. And the rewrite for 2.x will be to basically strip out some of those uh, libraries that we don't need anymore, and or, you know, technologies we don't need anymore, like VML, and add in WebGL. So basically, it'd be nice to be able to say, look, I've got one API to write vector graphics, whether it's Canvas, SVG, or, or WebGL. Nice. Yeah. That sounds really cool. Yeah. Then on top of that, there are um, implementations like gauges and other, you know, uh, visualizations that people use in dashboards. So like IBM Portal ships with Dojo. So anything you can imagine sticking into a portlet, they've they've wanted to be able to do with Dojo. Or there's a uh, Dojo X drawing API that lives on top of it that creates sort of like a Visio style diagramming tool inside of the browser on top of GFX. So there's really a lot of different ways that people have taken it. And some of it's a little crufty and some of it's really awesome. And But it's all there to, to hack on and use if, if you want. Awesome. All right. Well, I think we're just about out of time. We haven't heard a whole lot from Joe. Joe, do you have any questions? You guys keep asking my questions before I get a chance. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm good. So, so we asked all eight of Joe's questions too. <laughs> you know, I did... <laughs> I did kind of want to talk um, a little bit about this, the history of Dojo and this whole thing with um, adding things to, to the prototype. I think that's a really interesting conversation and history, especially for people that aren't familiar with that. Sure. So Dojo and Prototype.js were kind of, you know, became popular at the same time. And Prototype extended native objects, and we refused to do that. And so it kind of informed the decisions that were made. And when jQuery came out, they kind of followed our way. When Mootools came out, they kind of followed the Prototype way. But everyone has pretty much moved away from extending the native prototypes because you just don't know how your projects are going to be used. You know, you don't know how people are going to do it, how they're going to mix with other things. And it's just, even though it can create a cleaner API, it's just not generally safe. And so... But at the same time, you know, in some cases it can create really nice, clean, elegant API structures, but you always run into a problem with them that you don't expect. Yeah, you know, there's a really cool uh, feature in the C-sharp language where you can extend a class's interface, but only within a given scope. Right. And uh, that's something that would would be fantastic in JavaScript. But it it was just very interesting the, the directions that the different tools took and which tools back, you know, back then back when, uh, you know, well, I think this is all on BBSs back in, back uh, nine years ago, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into the picks then. AJ, you want to start us off? First off, I have to say that I am a feminist, which is not much like a feminist. So my personal belief is that the differences between men and women should be celebrated and that women should be treated with respect and dignity, but not that they should be treated not like men, not that they should be expected to be like men or behave like men or perform like men. And it really, really bugs me when um, like it's, it's women putting down other women for doing so-called traditional roles. Well, traditional roles like, you know, homemaking, taking care of kids, uh, being a nurturer. So uh, this week, I ran across two things that were just kind of uh, interesting for me to think about. One was actually really gratifying. It was this woman has a blog article about Grand Theft Auto and how she's incredibly outraged that you can rape prostitutes in the game. That's, that's a feature of the game. And I completely agree. And I wonder, like, where are all the other women that should be, you know, supporting that and, and making an outcry against, you know, that kind of thing being published 
by a company. And then another one was I watched My Fair Lady, which is this old Audrey Hepburn 1964 movie. And it was just kind of eye-opening to look at just the way that it, it, it was kind of a progressive movie, I would imagine. I mean, I didn't live in the 60s, but it seemed like it was kind of poking at the issue of um, equality and just the the way that the characters are, are portrayed and and it was just it just kind of made me think i i wouldn't say that i necessarily liked it in the end i don't feel like there was enough progression enough like th- there wasn't enough character growth but well my uh, fair lady is based on pygmalion which is a famous play from like 50 or 60 years before that and it was exactly about like um inequality and uh, not just like gender, but also just sort of class inequality that was really common in England at the time. And um, like sort of, you know, sniffing and like, you know, sort of looking down at the caste system that was in place. In many ways, it's there was like that Eddie Murphy movie, um, Trading Places, that you could sort of think of as like the modern day reinterpretation of that in, a, in an alternate way, where like, you know, Eddie Murphy is like, swapped with uh, a broker and he's like a bum you know and they swap them and they have, these two brokers have a bet that they can sort of like you know basically turn eddie murphy into this successful stockbroker and you know that it doesn't really take much at all and you know they bet a dollar on his life basically you know that they could do that so um it's kind of one of those recurring themes of and i i posted a comment in the chat that was like you know this is kind of like the debate between like double equals and tri- triple equals right so like a, Equality doesn't mean identity, and that's sort of my belief on your sort of original point. You know, it's like we're not all equal, but we should be equally respectful and appreciative of people and their choices they want to make. And you know, that's what a free society is really about: is is choice and you know, respect. Agreed. Yeah, I think that was that's my attempt to take it from a scary area to like back to not getting email complaints about the, uh, <laughs> the topic. That double versus triple equals thing, that was deep, man. That was, I'm still thinking about that. That was great. Yeah. Thanks. But but it was very well put, you know. Yeah, and, you know, depending on what you believe, you know, different lifestyles fit well or don't fit well. So, you know, yeah. you'd be respectful of what other people believe and think and want to do. And, yeah. If people would just worry more about themselves than what everyone else is doing, they'd be a lot happier and you know, I mean, as long as they it, don't think that semicolons are optional, right? Because that that would just be ridiculous. Agreed. Yes, <laughs> just break your build all the time. Uh, I can't count on someone else to take care of that for me. Uh, no, no. <laughs> all right, um, Jameson, what are your picks? I have two. They're less controversial. Well, <laughs> Thank you. Let's let's political. Let's let's put it that way. One is an amazing movie called Moon. It came out in 2009. Uh, I just saw it recently. And it's it's great. It's a hard sci-fi movie that asks some interesting questions related to what we talked about, about identity and equality. And it, it, was, it was done on a really low budget. So it's not like huge special effects, like crazy action. But there's lots of things in it that made me think. Um, so it was great. One of the best movies I've seen in a long time. The other one is a band called Dr. Dog. Uh, I heard about them from um, from somebody on Twitter. They're like, if the Beatles and Johnny Cash were alive today, kind of like old country pop style, but but a little more modern. Not that like, I don't know, plastic pop country that's on the radio right now, but it's it's great stuff. So those are my picks. Awesome. Joe, what are no, your picks? Apologies if anyone likes plastic pop country. Uh, that's not a real apology (laughs) that's one of those I'm sorry you didn't like that I'm sorry you're offended that I told you the music was awful alright Joe what are your picks alright so uh, this week's been an awesome week for iPad gaming Uh, there's two games dropping this week for the iPad that are just going to be sweet Uh, Warhammer Quest which is out already and that's a remake of a board game, and apparently the, they did a really good job adapting it for the iPad. And then the other one is Knights of the Old Republic 1 is coming out on the iPad, which everybody should be rejoicing, clapping, possibly crying as they hear this news that it's coming out on the iPad. 
Yeah, I just muted a girlish squeal. So good, good to hear. Yes. And so uh, I'm gonna pick those two games. Uh, on top of that, I'm gonna pick the book Ruins, which is a uh, the second novel in um, a series by Orson Scott Card, who's fantastic novel enders game is coming out in movie form later on this year very excited for that and so it's a uh, the pathfinder series uh book two is out it's a great book great novel it's very similar in spirit to enders game or harry potter you know younger protagonist but a very interesting mix of sci-fi and fantasy really a great novel and then the other thing i picked this last week kind of i'm not really Picking it so much as just making a note, uh, my Pluralsight course on Angular Fundamentals is number two out of 500 courses on Pluralsight, which I think speaks a lot more about the popularity of Angular than about necessarily anything about me, because I don't think people are watching it just because it was me, because nobody knows me, except for you guys, and not very well. We never get together. What's wrong with us? Yeah, we should get together. Yeah. And so, anyway, I just think it's really interesting that um, it's been, like, the number two most popular course on Pluralsight for quite a while. Um, out of all, out of 500 different courses, it's been the second most popular course, which I think is very cool and speaks a lot uh, about Angular. So, that's my picks. Awesome. All right, I'll go ahead and go next with my picks. Um, my first pick is an iPhone app that I've been using for the last week or so, and I, I really, really like it. Um, of course, I say that whenever I say talk about an iPhone app. This one's called Commit, and basically what it is is it's a way of tracking whether or not you did something that day. Anyway, basically the idea is is you put in what you want to uh, have done each day. So the things in mine are work out every day, take my morning medication every day, not drink caffeine every day, and uh, take my evening medication every day. And so then you kind of get in the habit of doing it. And the thing that's awesome about it is you check it off each day. And so, like, on Take Morning Meds, it's seven days in a row that I've been doing it. Not drinking caffeine. I had three days in a row. And then last night, I forgot I was trying to not drink caffeine. And I had some Diet Pepsi. But uh, anyway, so it it, it kind of gets you some momentum. And then you just don't want to break the streak. And so you're kind of gamifying your life. Yeah, a little bit, but uh, this is the only thing that's worked so far for some of this stuff. So. Nice. That's cool. Yeah, so uh, anyway, um, my feeling is is that, you know, these things, since they're important, if I can make them a priority and, and gamify it like that, it's really it's really awesome. So um, as long as it keeps working, I'll keep using the app. And uh, I really did hate breaking that streak yesterday, so I think it's going to work just fine. And I'm kind of adding new things to it every every few days because there are a few other things that I have as goals to do every day that I don't do unless I have it in here. So anyway, it's it's awesome. And I learned about it from a book called Authority, which is also by the same guy that made it. And uh, Authority is his book on marketing ebooks. And if you have any product really that's any kind of digital product, Authority is a great book. It's by Nathan Barry. And uh, you can find all his stuff at NathanBerry.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, Dylan, what are your picks? I had a pile of them. Um, let's see. So, of course, the intern was the testing tool I was talking about that you should check out. There's Because um, we talked so much about AMD and, and you guys are talking about games, there's a module called Frozen.js that if you're interested in building 2D web games, you should check out. Um, in college, I was a hammer thrower, and the world record holder is Yuri Sadiq, and you have to watch this video of him throwing. It's just the most ridiculous, cool thing ever. He throws it like, uh, I don't remember how many meters, but it's like two, almost three, almost 300 feet was the world record holder, and this is from like 1980s. He's Russian. He's on a lot of steroids. It's really cool. Um, <laughs> I'm a, uh, yeah. But one of the things that you'd mentioned in the email was basically saying, what are some of the things you do that makes your life easier? I do a lot of um, kundalini yoga and meditation, and I learned that from my now wife. Um, but basically, it's a type of yoga that is sort of not just about like how bendy you are or how well you can stretch, but it sort of combines like mind, body, breathing, and it, it kind of gives you like a life hack for anything. So like if you're feeling tired, they say like there's a Kriya for that. Or if you're like feeling sore, there's a way to get around that. Or if you're feeling depressed, which isn't something I really have a problem with, but if you are, there's like a Kriya for that. So it's like this guy who invented like these thousands of yoga sets and taught them around 
the U.S. like you know from like 1970 till about 2006 when he passed away, and it's just really powerful stuff. And it's also the first kind of meditation I've ever done where I'm actually able to do it because a lot of it is like chanting-driven meditation rather than like sitting there with your mind blank for 20 minutes, which just puts me to sleep. Arcosani is this cool place in Arizona. Uh, we got married there. It was also the place we had our first date. And what's cool about it is it's this place that's an arcology that was built by this architect who was Italian. And he wanted to basically come up with a community that could be self-sustaining and sort of like, you know, very environmentally friendly. And so it's got these really cool architectural settings. And what was really fascinating is he passed away like the week we got married. So it was just a, a really powerful experience for us. Um, and then we went on our honeymoon in um, Bali and uh, with a layover on the way back in Seoul. And, you know, Seoul is a very underrated place. It's got a really cool art district called Insadong, and it's well worth a couple of days spending there. And then Bali is like Hawaii meets Thailand, and it's just a really uh, cool, awesome place to spend a few weeks and get away from it all and disconnect. And yet still be connected enough that you can get really nice food and spend time on the beach or go hiking in the mountains or go water rafting or snorkeling or scuba diving or all those good things. So that's um, those are my picks for the past month or week or whatever. Awesome. Th- those are awesome picks. Yeah, I think I like they would make my life better. I think you you accomplished that goal. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thanks. And of course, Dojo um, would would help with that too if you if you so see fit. <laughs> yeah. Right. Good. Okay. And uh, other than that, we'll wrap this show up. We'll catch y'all next week.